And we're back with another episode of the City of Smack podcast. Apologies on my end for the delay in posting a new episode of the show. Work got a little bit busy for me. And if you follow me on Twitter, you can see that I was following all the Kamoy Campbell news pretty closely. For those of you who are unfamiliar with what happened at the Milrose Games, Kamoy Campbell is a Jamaican Olympian and a professional runner for Reebok. During the men's 3,000 meters, Kamoy collapsed shortly after he stepped off the track from pacing in the race. At the time, it was unknown what had happened, and as of this recording, doctors are still kind of looking for answers. Kamoy was unconscious for some time. EMTs were there, first responders were there, and defibrillators were used to help revive him. The NYPD and the FDNY showed up, and after about 20 minutes, he was taken off the track on a stretcher, but it was still a very scary moment on the track. We had no idea what was going to happen next. The events were put on hold for a little bit. And eventually we got the news that he was sedated. And by Tuesday, he was awake and talking. He posted a nice video on Instagram on Valentine's Day. So things are looking better for Kamoy. However, you know, his family issued a statement thanking people for all their thoughts and prayers. But due to the mounting medical costs, they also created a GoFundMe page to help support him and his recovery. So what I decided to do with this episode was I decided to share that news with you and also let you know that I've included the link to the GoFundMe in the show notes. So if you'd like to donate, I'm sure that the Campbell family would greatly appreciate that. So on my behalf, apologies for the delay in a new episode, but I hope you understand. My guest for today's show is Rob Napolitano, because after all that happened at the meet, Rob was still tasked with pacing 21-year-old Ethiopian star Yomif Kajelcha to the indoor mile world record. So Rob was scheduled to go through 440 yards in 56 seconds, 880 yards in 1 minute and 53 seconds, 1,000 meters in 2 minutes and 20 seconds. So the way the race played out, after about 800 meters, Kajelcha just took over the race and ended up running 348.46, which is .01 off Hickam El world record. So I thought it would be fun to chat with Rob about what it's like to get assigned with something so tough. We also delve into his own respective running career and how he became a professional runner with the New Jersey New York Track Club. And interestingly enough, we also get into some of the experiences that a rookie runner faces on their first trip out to Europe, while also trying to earn somewhat of a living from the sport. So it's an interesting conversation I think you'll enjoy. So without further ado, let's start the show. All right, we're joined by Rob Napolitano, who was the unfortunate soul, or maybe the lucky soul, who got to pace Yomif Kajelcha to a 348-46 mile. Uh, so, Rob, first off, have the legs recovered since that pacing job? The legs have recovered. We worked out yesterday, so it was a quick turnaround. Go but uh, I don't know if I've mentally recovered. <laughs> I physically recovered, but mentally the grind is going. Let's get right into it then. Okay. How did you get selected as the pacer for this thing? 
Um, well, I got selected November 1st to do a very different job than, um, than what transpired the other day. Um, David Monty, who's New York Roadrunners uh, meet director, I guess, for Wanamaker, approached me after that 5K in uh, Central Park. And uh, he was like, hey, I want you to wrap it, Wanamaker. Like, we'll cut you a good deal, and uh, it'll be so easy. You'll just run 156. And I was like, sweet, that's amazing. Let's do it. And then um, fast forward to like late January or like February 1st, and they're like, ah, we need you to run. Well, yeah, Ray Flynn of uh, Flynn Sports is like, yeah, we need you to run 152, 153, and then go to 1,000. And I was like, what? Like, I haven't heard that. Like, what happened? And they're like, oh, well, Kajelcha wants to set the world record at Melrose. And here I am, like, walking down the street, like, do, 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 like, this is going to be so easy. And then run into Ray Flynn at Coogan's, and I was like, oh, my God. The, the job has changed. <laughs> so fell into that one pretty, pretty quickly. How was your indoor season going up until that? I think you raced at, like, the Dr. Sander meet? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we ran that four by mile. Yeah, and uh... – I mean, up until this point, you you pretty much <laughs> had to focus on this thing and treat it like a race, right? Because the pace yeah. was aggressive. Yeah, the, I, I joked that this was the hardest race in my entire year. And uh, it was a lowly paced job. But the season was going well before. Um, we ran that four by mile. I split 56 high or 57 low coming off of a training camp trip, which was which was, you know, a good step forward and a good opener. It was six seconds op- faster than my opener last year, so I was pumped. And then went to Boston last weekend, and we went out in 33, and then came through 462, and I was like, oh, my goodness. We need to, we need to run hard and barely squeaked under four. And then I had this I had to focus on, which was a race in and of itself. Um, did you do anything differently in training for this? No, no, I don't think so. I didn't want to mess anything up and go too off the cuff. So let's stick to the 24 hours or the lead up to the actual race. You you know what the assignment is. You kind of have an idea of where your fitness is at. In the 24 hours beforehand, what is everyone telling you? Because, I mean, I think I had heard, like, the first assignment is like, oh, you're going to go through in 220 or you're going to have mm-hmm. to go through in 222. So it was like, what did people want? What did you like? And at what point did you finally decide, okay, this is what I have to do? Yeah. Um, everyone wanted different things, I think. Um, on the New York Roadrunners side, they didn't want any faster than like 154, 155. On the Nike side, they wanted a really good first 400 and focus on getting to 800 in 152 to 153, potentially going to a K. Only if I know I could really rip from eight to, to, uh, to a thousand. But then I think Kajelcho wanted something else too because he went past me earlier than I expected. Um, but I just told myself I'm getting to the line and I'm going to run 800 meters in 153. And I think I was 153.7 at 809. So in that sense, I did my job. But yeah, it was a crazy 24 hours. I met with Alberto and Kajelcho in the morning before the race and they told me what they wanted and I felt good about it. I felt good about it for sure. Um, it was exciting, but it was a lot of pressure for, for a pace job at Melrose. What did Kajelcha say? Cause I know his English isn't like perfect, but mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. with Salazar a bit and how much talking did he do during the race? 
Um, during the race, he he told me to move over at, at about 700. And I was okay. like, <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, on the turn is kind of a tough spot. So I put my head down and got to 750. And then I swung wide. Um, afterwards, he was, he was, you know, pretty happy. He came over, gave me a big hug, you know, and as much as he, he could convey to me, he said, you know, thank you and great job. Um, yeah, we, we didn't talk all that much, um, but I hope it was positive. Yeah. Would you, yeah. Do, would you do it again? Oh, so actually, then in the actual race, you yeah. went through 800 in like 153. Yeah. You moved out into uh -huh. like lane two for a bit. <laughs> ducked right back into lane one, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, because cause, uh, for everyone else who doesn't know, uh, we had a thousand camera set up. So we wanted to use that to qualify for USAs as well. Because last weekend, we were going to qualify in the mile, went out in 62. That kind of went out the window. So organized a camera at 1,000 to get a split. But I didn't want to get in anyone's way. So I knew people were coming. I knew I was in lane two. I looked over my shoulder and saw Clayton and Ed coming. And I was like, well, just hit the brakes and let them pass. And I'm in lane two, like just jogging at this point, <laughs> just absolutely walking. And they come by me, and there's some space. So I tuck back in, and you know, I went from like 60 to zero to back to 60, like totally just messing with the momentum, and then just jogged it in for a really slow 224, a thousand, an awkward way to run it. Kajel <laughs> uh, just said the first 400 was a little fast. Did you feel that, or was it just excitement? What was what was up I with think, the first four? I think he was right. I think it was a bit fast. It was it was awkward for sure. Um, I mean, if you go on Let's Run, you'll basically find pictures of me crucified. Did you um, did you read Did you read that before the race? Um, I had people send me stuff before the race, which I was like, dude, this is a, not a good move. Like, why are you sending me this? Basically, <laughs> just getting berated and bullied on Let's Run. It was just but, like comparing the numbers. They were breaking it down. There's like, this is not the right guy for the job, and, and yeah, it's added pressure. Yeah, it's added pressure. It's also it wasn't what the job was prescribed to be up until 10, 14 days ago. And um, listen, I mean, I just don't think running 153 is hard in that sense. So it's a little salty about that, you know, those comments, but that's fine. I will admit that we were out a bit slow. And then I think it was Alberto. Alberto just like screamed. He was like, like, pick it up, like top of his lungs. And I was like, shit. I was like, yeah, we got to roll. So that's why the second lap was pretty fast. But then we were, I think he was like 55 point. And um, they had stressed to me that the first 400 was the most important and the first 400 needed to be fast. So um, I think it could have been done smoother, but that checkbox was definitely checked. Yeah. Yeah. For what it's worth, I don't think the point zero one was on you. I think it was on the fact that yeah. you didn't lean at what? the he was running into lane two yeah. at the end. He was. Um, that's the thing about the pace job. It's like if he doesn't get that record, who who are people blaming? They're not blaming Kajalcha. Yeah. No. But um, I know. I know. What's that? No one's blamed you, though, right? Uh, <laughs> not directly, but like you could read between the lines. Okay. Uh, um. <laughs> I, yeah, no, it's it's not a big deal. I I think there's no blame, but a bit blame on on all parties in a way. Yeah. So I wanted to do this podcast because one, you were an integral part of a pretty 
crazy race over the weekend. Yeah. I guess like just so that people can get to know you a little bit better. So let's dive into your running background. I guess you were a standout at Columbia, but before that, how was it mm-hmm. that you got into running? Um, I played a lot of sports. Played football. I was a running back. I was a receiver. I played soccer and basketball, and I was good at those. But I was really only good because I was so fast. And um, I wanted to go to high school to play football, and I, I did. I specifically picked my high school because they had a good football team. Was not thinking about running. And then my dad sat down with me one day and was very just like, "I don't know if you're going to play football to the level you want to," because he knows I'm so competitive and want to you know do well and he told me he's like i think you should maybe try running i ran in middle school casually just we had some races on saturdays and sundays where you'd roll up and run a mile or something like that but i was never into it didn't love it but sooner or later grew into it very quickly in high school and um yeah it was a community that welcomed me and i subsequently welcomed it and it was kind of history from then on what were you focusing on as a high schooler in terms of distances? Mostly the mile. Mostly the mile or eight. I ran cross country. I was very serious about that in the fall. But once I hit the track, I just loved it so much more. Um, I think just because I was naturally better, you know, quicker. How did you go about deciding to choose Columbia? And what were your, I guess, like, were, were there other options that people mm-hmm. were looking at you because of some of your PRs? And what were some of those PRs at the time? PRs, I ran... Um, 411 for I think like a full mile, maybe 411 or 412 and 153 and on a flat 5k course ran 15, 1503 or something like that and cross. And there were options. I really wanted to go out west and go to Stanford. Um, I took a visit there. I took a visit to Michigan, University of Pennsylvania, and of course Columbia. And I didn't want to go to a city school, which is just so ironic. <laughs> uh, going, going to a city school and now living in the city. Um, I clearly didn't know what I wanted because I set foot on Columbia's campus in my first visit and within a few hours leaving the dining hall, I was like, all right, I'm kind of done. I don't need to go check out any place else. I did. I did. But every visit just solidified the fact that I wanted to go to Columbia and made that choice pretty early, pretty early on, senior year. What was it like running at Columbia? Because I know HEPS is kind of its own thing where... For you yeah. guys, you treat it like it's the Olympics. Yeah, we do. We really do. It's so sweet. Like People care so much about it. And you see kids come off of HEPS weekend, and they're just like, like, wow, what just happened? Like, I don't have anything left. What am I supposed to do? I can't run next week. I just gave everything I had at HEPS. And I think that's why Columbia was so special. There are other reasons, obviously. I mean, the, the typical reasons you hear from people, the, the people you're with and the school itself and opportunities and things like that. But the passion that people put into HEPs and meets like that were so cool. And uh, it's just so fun watching people get so hyped for a meet that it's probably so not important in the grand scheme of things, but just well, going so I would say it's important. Hard. And like the, and the team aspect is crazy, but the thing, it, it's just the level of competitions, like the times aren't anything. No. <laughs> yeah, but that's, yeah, you're right. I think you kind of just said it though. The level of competition is so high, but the times are so slow. And I think that's exactly the way to describe it. People are so competitive and just jog and jog and jog. And at some point, you're just going to run something dumb for your last 600 because 
yeah, it's just, it's a totally different race and I miss it. I do miss those days a lot. Um, so special. What was your favorite Heps race or like memory? It doesn't even have to be one that you're in, but just mm -hmm. watching someone. Um, I think a, a little bit of both to answer that question. We ran in Harvard my sophomore year and I, I had, it was my first Heps win ever. We ran the mile, it starts off the meet. I won that. And then I watched a teammate come back and he ran the 800 and he won that. Then I watched another teammate come back and he ran the K and he won that. And then we came back later, those uh, us three and another, another athlete and we ran the four by eight and then we won that. <laughs> and I was like, oh my goodness, like, could this be any better of a day? Little sophomore Rob was just so hyped. And I think back about that a lot because it was about me, but it also wasn't at the same time. You know, I couldn't have done anything without those older guys. Yeah, one of my good friends is Paul Snyder, who people have yeah. maybe listened to on this podcast before. And was I remember, and Kyle Merber, of course, there was a time I think I remember, this might have been like mid-2012s or like 2013s Twitter, when it was just <laughs> crazy. Uh -huh. Tate won Heps. What was that all about? Oh, Tate, yeah. Such a great story. All right, so Tate was in the slow heat at Heps. Heps is... The HEPS 3K is a bit controversial because there's a fast heat and a slow heat, which up until this point was just dumb and no one understood why there was a slow heat. And Tate got put in the slow heat based on his time and just such a hardworking kid and just such a great runner and sense of the fact that he was just a grinder. And he went out and he just grinded through this slow 3K with just like not many good runners and one... His heat, I don't know, in like 8.16 or something, was like not fast, not very fast. And the next heat was on the track, and it was like Daniel Everett, 401. Will Gohegan, sub four guy. Like Blade, sub four. Tommy Awad, we all like know he was about to blow up. And um, they go out, and just all these sub four milers about to rip, and they just start walking and walking. Like we just said, you know. And they weren't doing the math, and they weren't looking at the clock. And it came down to it, they had to close in four minutes for the last mile if they were going to win the, the overall meet. And of course, they weren't paying attention. And we started to realize, we're like, oh my God, Tate from the slow heat, this random kid at the time is about to win over Gohegan and Everett and Boudet and Awad. So we stopped cheering. We shut up. The Columbia coaches, I think, started to give signals to Everett like sorry, dude, like it's over. You're not going to win. Stay back here. Do not make this go. And they just started to, they started to pick up on it at the end. And then it was so futile. And then Tate won Hets out of the slow heat. He came back from his cool down. I don't think he even knew he came back from his cool down and we were going nuts. We were like, Oh man, we picked Tate up. People were just going crazy. I think flow track even tweeted like Tate won Hets. And, um, it's just, that's the magic of the Hets. Literally anything will happen. That's an awesome story. I didn't know that was the, that was the full thing. Uh, yeah. So wait, what was, what was it that happened? The the second heat was probably warming up when that first heat was going off, and like no one really knew the result up until later. No, dude, they were there. I just don't think they cared, and they were just so cocky. They were just like, "No, we'll get there. Like, we'll we'll get it." Because frankly, it's when you're when you're those guys, I and mean, they're so talented. I don't think you really paid any attention to the slow heat. That's just how it was. No one ever watched. No one cared. It's like there were even coaches that had suggested to totally get rid of the slow heat. Like, it's, it's pointless. And now it's just legend.
That's just like, yeah, it's hilarious. You wrap up at Columbia. What was your overall feeling, I guess, about your NCAA career and like the PRs that you had at the time? And I mm-hmm. guess where where were you at that point in terms of just your progression? I think I was I was genuinely or genuinely very happy with it. I think I could have done some other things to run a bit faster, but I mean, looking back, then there's definitely no complaints. One a fair amount of HEPs races, and then ran a good 1,500. I think I think leaving into the regional meet, I was like a sixth seat or something with a 339 that I just popped. Um, qualified indoors in the mile, then qualified outdoors my senior year to go to Eugene, which was such a cool experience. I didn't finish well in those races, I'll be honest, but at that point, I was I was a bit content leaving Columbia with what I had done. Um, and I wasn't sure that I was going to continue. It wasn't a guarantee. I, I kind of left Eugene a little banged up. My IT band was so tight. wasn't going to USA's. I didn't know I was running later on in my life with, with NJ and Y and stuff. So when I left, I was, I was closed out. I was like, this is the end of that chapter. I'm happy with it. I ran really fast. I gave it my all. I was competitive and had fun. So that was cool. And now, thankfully, I'm back. Yeah, and then what was that process like when you sat down or kind of like had to pitch yourself to someone like Gags mm-hmm. to get a spot on NGA and why? Because I guess like it was, it's like you, you weren't running fast enough to have like a guaranteed spot. It was really you had to prove yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, I started to speak with Gags in December of my senior year. And I didn't have a good indoor season, so I was like, that's not that great. And then outdoors was turning up, um, and I kept in good contact with him. I would email him all the time and really was just, I was like, hey, I I really want to do this. I know there's no money for me. I know there's not really a spot, but if I can just train with you guys and get some sort of help, I think think it's worth the investment. And I just had to keep pitching myself, and it turned out really well. Last year was hard. It was an adjustment for sure, and living living without a sponsorship is tough, but I think it serves as some sort of motivation, you know, and a bit of a chip on your shoulder to run fast and continue continue for yourself. And um, it's definitely a learning curve, but I think I'm all adjusted at this point. It wasn't a case where you had to, like, hit certain times or anything like that, right? No, it was, absolutely. It was. They were, yeah, there were concrete times where it was – you need to, and that's how it works. You need to hit these times in order to get money. Um, and the way NJ and Y trains is we don't, we don't prioritize indoors very much whatsoever. It's such a training phase, and and you look at our times last year, or you can even just look at my times. I was coming off indoors running four flat and like squeaked under four, just like such a tiny amount. And then outdoors ran three fifty seven or three thirty eight like five times in a row and under five weeks it's like okay we clearly prioritize outdoors but when you're um when you're training for indoors and you don't have money and you're like oh my goodness like there are set times i need to hit and i'm not hitting them so stressful so it was a long year in a sense like i had to wait really until july when we went to europe my first race over there was when i finally got something that was pretty quick and was able to to get in that pool and make make some money now when you start off and you have you're not getting financial support from like a shoe company. 
Mm -hmm. what, what else, I guess, are you doing to, to live is probably what everyone is wondering. Yeah. How, like, what, how am I supporting myself and how am I making money? Yeah. Um, at, one at one point, I was running and working two jobs as well, which was a nightmare and a half. Didn't last very long because I was, so, I was stretched so thin. I was commuting down to the city for two separate jobs. I crashed at my cousin's like apartment once because I just I couldn't go home, and I was like, "Oh my god, I need to be back at work at seven a.m. tomorrow morning." What were you to get in this? Um, I was working at a hedge fund for a little bit, and then I was working uh, tutoring a family, and they're both in the city, and um, I was just juggling back and forth, coming in like a day or two here, a day or two there, and then I was running, and then I was like, "Oh, we need to go to this meet," and I was like, "Oh my god, like." So many things were happening. I got bit by a dog, and then I needed to go to the hospital, and then I needed to go to work, and then I needed to tell my other boss. I was like, yo, I'm in the hospital. Like, I'm not making it. Like, I also need to go for this run. It was a crazy time. It was nuts. I do not wish that on anybody. But you, you work it out. You find a way to, to grind, and then you find people that are going to support you as well. I mean, gags helped a lot. The club helped a lot um, in terms of rent and stuff like that. But you got to hustle in that position, it's so tough, it's so tough. So I think it's something that people aren't truly aware of really, but um, builds character. Yeah, and you, especially in our sport, I guess, when you are, I guess, in that professional level and you're trying to make whatever money you can, it really does take a trip to Europe to try and just make, squeak out as much money as you can from all those races. And that's why you ended up having to run so many sub four miles yeah. in a short span of time. What was that like for you, I guess, in terms of just lining up those races and in the end, was it worth it financially? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're, you're so right. I mean, going to Europe is a big investment, but especially on an off year like last year, if you don't go, you're kind of just stuck here, relegated to road miles and maybe catching one on the circuit in the US, but they're really not that fast. So I was dead set on going to Europe. I had no funding from from the company, and I was thinking, how am I going? Like, I'm in a, such a tough spot. If I don't go, I won't make money. If I stay, I won't make like I won't do anything. But I finally made it there through through the club, and my first race, we just popped off, ran three thirty eight something, and like that, everything just was so clear and felt like a huge weight off my shoulders. And from then on, we were just racing, and I raced nineteen times outdoors. And I raced five times in 19 days at one point because I was just like, I don't have anything to lose. Like, why, like, why wouldn't I try to run 337 and get to like the next tier or something like that? And it was worth it, I think. I think I would approach it much differently this time around and pick my battles a bit more. I definitely think I could have run faster last year if I didn't exhaust myself every couple of days with just ripping something, something dumb. Um, it was fun. It was a blast. I loved it so much. I hope that we can go back this year. Is it something that other pros talk among each other to some extent? Like even if it's not, you know, too much about just kind of like, well, you know, I could get $500 or whatever it is for pacing at this race, or I can go mm -hmm. and try, you know, take a train out to this other meet in Belgium and maybe get fourth and get some money or something like that. Like, how do you guys juggle those conversations and just your own schedules while you're out there? Because pretty much you guys are living out of a suitcase for about a month and a half, bouncing yeah. from country to country. Yeah. Um, I think we are practical in that sense where 
and everyone understands that you are out there to make some money. So you are taking care of yourself. It was a bit of a wake up call for me because coming from a, the collegiate system where it's so tight knit and team oriented, and you're just like, oh, of course I'm following you, I'm following you, you're following me, and it's all cool. And then you get over to the professional side and it's like, well, I'm actually just gonna go over here and make some money. Um, yeah, it's, it's tough. I think we communicate well with each other, but it was definitely different. We're practical in that sense. We need some money. As a rookie for the first yeah. time out in Europe, is it also tough to balance the, man, I'm in this really cool city that I've been <laughs> before, and yeah. I, I want to go and see things, and at the same time, I've got to race tomorrow, and I've got to run really fast? Yeah, so tough. So tough. I was in um, a tiny Airbnb with one of our teammates in this tiny town in Belgium. And it was a sweet town. I mean, I loved it. We hung out all the time, but you basically could explore the whole town in like three days. And we were there for three weeks. Is this Leuven? Yeah, we're in Leuven. Have you, were you over there? Yeah, I was there. I've been there twice. Yeah. It's, it's, like, it's awesome, isn't it? It's so cool. So cool. You know, do you have a waffle? Of course, with the gold yeah. plates. I think that's oh my god. the fact that oh. every professional runner's Instagram in the summer is a photo <laughs> yeah. of that cobble, cobble road with a hand-extended yes. gold plate mm -hmm. waffle with a scoop of ice cream. Yeah. How much faster do you think I would have ran if I didn't have seven waffles <laughs> in my trip in Europe? And, and oh. practice on the egg-shaped track that they have. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, seriously. Um, it was kind of tough. I think... I separate running and life pretty well, I think. Like I wasn't that afraid to go out and venture. We took a few like day trips or something like that. But you went a little stir crazy. Yeah. I won't I won't lie. It's like, wow, how many times can I just kick it in my room and think about this race on Friday? Yeah. I are are you able to also like pick up on certain things that and like, what did you learn as a rookie surrounded by some of these people who go to Leuven every single summer? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because say before meet like Houston, which is, I guess, toward the end of like that summer circuit, everyone wants to run at Houston yeah. and it's really difficult to get into that meet. And so the people who do end up getting in, everyone's doing their shakeout on the same day around the same time. And you start to see like all these different people, whether it's, you know, Bowerman people or, mm -hmm. you know, someone like Molly Huddle uh, just shaking out. And like there's just these people who've been doing this for years and years. What did you observe or like pick up on the way that they approached kind of their their Europe circuit? Um, the biggest thing that I really noticed was how confident they were and how they really stuck to their routine, but they were not overthinking it whatsoever. They understood that they had trained for literally nine to 10 months for these three weeks, and were so okay with the fact that the work was done, and they were just there to feel good and stay sharp and stuff like that. So that was, that was weird for me to see because I never trained like that before, and it was something that I knew I needed to just like commit to, get on that train, feel like that all the time, and because that takes so much pressure off you, you know, you don't, you know, you're almost not thinking anymore. You're just, you're accepted of the fact that I'm fit and now I just need to show up. So it was cool. It was really nice seeing some of those celeb types, as you would want to call them, just walking around and leaving with you. And they're not really thinking about track. They're not talking about that, that race that's coming up. However, on Saturday morning when they get up, 
it's like it's go time and it's go time for everyone so it was cool it was nice being in that community with everyone what was your coaching situation like while you're out there because gags doesn't travel and he barely travels when from meet to meet in the united states he's days in new york um how does that work for the njny crew at that point there's really not too much to be done honestly i mean if he's giving us a pre-meet that's one thing we might just come up with a pre-meet on our own really the pre-meet workout as i'm talking about but we we we'll have an email conversation or we'll have a phone conversation, but there's really not that much coaching. And I think that goes back to knowing that the work is done and you just need to show up. You're really on your own. You're just on a vacation that you happen to be really responsible on and run fast on Saturday nights, you know? Um, that was a shock. That was a shock, absolutely. Um, it's come like July, I was like, whoa, no one's training us anymore? Like, what? <laughs> what? Did I even have to run? Part of it too is also the fact that there isn't too many too much time for like actual workouts because you're going from race to race. Yeah, exactly. It's like, what are you gonna if you're racing Saturday and then you're racing again like on Thursday, you don't really need anyone to give you a workout or tell you anything. You just need a phone call and be like, Hey, that was a great job. Like, make sure you go kick some ass on Thursday. And you're like, Cool, thanks. And then like that's the that's the thought of running for the entire week. That you go out and like a gags call, though. That doesn't sound like a gags call. You don't think so? No, dude, that's a gags call. Gags, gags, will, gags will call you. The phone will ring, right? You'll pick it up, and he won't say hello. He won't say anything. He'll be like, great job. That was great. Great. Go uh, just make sure you get uh, some recovery and kick ass on Thursday. Talk to you, and then I'll just hang up. And you're like, wow, I didn't say anything. Um, he gets right to the point. He doesn't mess around. When did you pick up on that about him? And, and how, <laughs> how much getting used to is there for gags? Because that's what I've heard is just over the years, story after story, is that he's an interesting coach. He is such an interesting coach. He's like a 25-year-old trapped in an 82-year-old's body, soon to be 82. Um, yeah, so there's like some getting used to because, I mean, he's not messing around. It's, it's rapid fire at all times. There's no... I mean, there's bedside manner, but there's also at the same time, it's like, don't disappoint. Like, don't be a bad investment, as he calls as he calls them. But uh, he's great. It's fun. It's not that much to get used to, really. Has he gotten mad at you yet? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Give me but, a like, <laughs> but, like, he'll be mad at you. He'll be mad at you, and then he'll, like, smile and wink at you. And then, like, give you a hug. And it's like, like, this is why he's good, because he... He is intense enough to keep you on your toes at all times, but he shows his love for you enough to know that for you to know that he has your back and it'll everything will be fine. Everything will be fine. Do you ever feel or have have you gotten to the point or thought about it at any time? The fact that you're very fortunate to have him as a coach, even for like this amount of time, because there's been talk for years and years and years, like, oh, when's Gag's gonna quit? When's he gonna mm -hmm. be done? I mean, he's in his 80s now, and yeah. it's like, okay, maybe the 16 trials are the final one, or even yeah. before, maybe the 2012 trials were going to be the final one. And it's just like he – there's always just a new wave of athletes coming through, and I think it's hard on him to, you know, to give stop, up right? or, just, or just, like, stop it cold. That's it. I know, I know. I think, you're, I think you're right. It's no small feat, like, what he does. But he is so attractive as a coach – 
and you know, just like you said, every year there's new athletes that are just coming in, knocking on the door, being, you know, coached by gags and begging for him to coach them. There was talk, I think, about him, you know, stepping aside in 2016 after the trials. It's like would have been the fitting time. And I wasn't on the team then, but I had heard that he took some time off. Like was like, yeah, I need to step down a little bit, and we'll let the assistant coaches kind of take over. And then apparently, like a workout or two went by that he didn't show up to, and was like, no, I, I can't. I'm done. Like I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. I'm not leaving. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't think he's really ever gonna give it up as long as he says. As long as his mind is sound and he's he's there, we keep him so young. I mean, how could you not? If he's around 25 year olds three days a week and he calls us, you know, every other day, he has so much energy and motivation in that sense. He, he really just wants to give it all to us, which is, which is pretty sweet. So what's his equation again? It's strength plus speed. You put it in a bowl and mix it all up and then uh, mix it all up and you get a champion. When did you buy into that? Um, well, I, you know, it's funny because the system that I was under in Columbia was pretty close to gags and i had heard you know from liam boylan pet columbia grad with njny johnny uh merber i was around these guys for so long i think i bought into it before i was really even in it i was just almost waiting it's like oh when 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 can i join and do this and that goes back to your other question when and i heard that there was a chance that gags was stepping down i was like man this is not good because maybe i won't get my opportunity maybe i won't be able to run for gags someday because you know, I did buy into that pretty early on. Um, yeah. At, th at this point, what does he have you believing? And like, what? How often do these conversations take place? Where I mean, it's fairly common for every runner to you know meet with their coach and discuss mm -hmm. goals. What conversations have you had with him? And then what what does he see as like your potential? That's the thing about Gags. I think he believes in everyone everyone's ability to come through and run fast no matter who they are so he and he treats us like that because he expects us to be that good and he talks about goals that are pretty lofty i mean he wants everyone to make the final at usa's this summer he wants everyone to shoot for the world team and not discount yourself because you might not be a household name but he doesn't believe in that stuff he does not care about who you are or what you've done i think he knows after 56 years that anything can happen and people come out of the woodwork all the time so those are the goals that he puts forth he doesn't he doesn't discount us whatsoever and he talks about them at important times but he doesn't talk about them all that frequently really um you know we communicate frequently but when the big talks come they're a bit few and far between but they're very hard hitting he'll just join join us on the line before a workout and get everyone together and raise his voice super high and you realize you're like oh my god this is gags it's like he's been laying low for like three weeks and all of a sudden he's here pumping his fists and screaming about the olympic games or something like that and then we'll just go out and rip a workout and everyone's <laughs> like oh i'm making the world team it's no problem <laughs> that's your goal this year make the make the world team <laughs> make the world team chris is that even this year it's so damn late no yeah october yeah yeah, I just want to run fast. I need a better outdoor showing than last uh, last USA's. When you look back at your rookie season, what do you see as being like, hey, that was a rookie mistake. I shouldn't have done that. Or, I mean, you ran some pretty good times in PR, so it's like 
really don't mm-hmm. have too much to hang your head on. No, I don't. I think it was a good rookie season. I mean, I ran really fast, really consistently. I was, I was always there. The thing that like hangs over my head was just USA's outdoors last year, not making that final, getting caught up in that little, little trip with uh, with one David, of the, or, right? yeah, with David and one of the OTC boys, and um, that is something that definitely happened for a reason because I was really content going into that. I was running fine. And at that point, I thought I was running great. I was like, this is sweet. It's like, I'm just like on all the time. But then that happened and it was a wake up call. And I was like, wow, dude, like there are so many bigger things that you need to kind of wrap your head around. And if you're ever going to get to that next level and like, you know, just not getting into that final and falling and being in a dumb spot that a rookie would pick at 900 meters with Centro on your outside. It's like, you can't be there. You need to be clear of all that stuff. So that definitely hangs over my head, but I'm thankful it happened or else I would have probably just kept going through the summer being like, oh, this is fine. I'm doing okay. That comment sticks out to me. It's just kind of knowing your place during an, ac- an actual race and also it being Matt Centrowitz. Are we mm-hmm. at a point where, you know, he kind of is the guy who dictates the race. He's the only guy in the field who has an Olympic gold medal and it's, yeah. It's, does he usually get a pass for like, oh, let let him do what he does and then try and hang on for as long as he can? But at the same time, you want to be the guy who beats him. Yeah, so that's the thing. It's a little bit of both. There's definitely respect. I think everyone is looking at the heat sheet and saying, why am I in Centro's heat? I think that's a default response. But yeah, at the same time, if you're ever going to make those leaps and bounds, you kind of need to just get over that and say, screw it. Like, I'll take this chance. If you don't take that chance, you'll just never get there. Yeah. When you but he is incredible, man. Yeah. When you're out in Europe, because yeah. you meet so many of the same guys over time, did any sort of rivalries develop? Well, it doesn't even have to be like an enemy one, but it's just like where you just kind of like, well, I really want to beat this guy every single time I'm out. <sighs> no, I think it was too green to even like conceptualize that. I think I was just so set on running fast. I didn't care who I was beating. I was like, just run fast. doesn't matter. Just try to win. Um, yeah, I was pretty dumb at that point. I don't even think I even knew who, who I was running against. Just like, oh, yeah, we have another race today. It's cool. And then I look back, I look back at the results. It's like, damn, those people were good. We weren't even paying attention. What was the best race that you had out in, uh, in Europe? Um, the last one I ran in Ninov. I think I'm saying that wrong, but we ran a, ran a 1500. And I think I was third, took down some, some guys that have been wanting to beat for a little bit and some Americans that, you know, it showed me that I was pretty fit and definitely earned a spot to be out there and wasn't just messing around anymore. Yeah, we ran 338-0 and I went from way back 300 meters to go to, to third, which was nice. And it was a close third. It was one of those blanket finishes. And after all that racing, I think you said it was, what, 19 times last year? Yeah, yeah. You still... I flew back... Yeah, sorry. Oh, no, what were you saying? You flew back what? I flew back after Nanov that night to Jersey, and then, like, 36 hours later, ran another one that we put on at the shore. Travis Mahoney put it on. I remember that. Yeah, dude, it was sweet. We got to get you down there this year. It was so fun. Um yeah, and it was like 7 o'clock at night, Jersey time, and it was like 2 a.m. my time, and I just got off a flight, and I was like, oh, my goodness. 
just just hang on just hang on but it was so fun like um i will definitely take perhaps maybe a little bit of hit in time over over that summer just to like have those experiences because you know they were so unique and so cool and somehow you still ended up running a 5k in november <laughs> uh do we want to call that running gosh i got my stuff handed to me up that last hill you know that hill man yeah Oh God! Yeah, right by tavern. Yeah. Just like, um, yeah. If someone if someone started kicking early because they thought there was only like hundred meters to go, it was actually Daniel. Dan, hey Daniel, when if you're listening, <laughs> Daniel started like kicking early with like four five hundred meters to go, and everybody went. And I was like, no, 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 we're so far out. And um, <laughs> hit that hill, and I was just like, <laughs> every step was just like in syrup. But yeah, we turned around quick, man. You'd think that Daniel Wynn at this point, with the year that he's had in New York, would know and mm-hmm. just be able to <laughs> right. <laughs> you have to know what the finish line is, dude. Unless it was just part of the strategy where he was maybe just like, "Well, you know, I think I can take it <laughs> far out, and everyone else will think that the finish line." Is- <laughs> that could have all been strategy. It could have been. It could have been. It's a bold move. Um. All right, we're gonna hit the final couple questions that I ask every guest. Okay, what's up? First one, what's the meanest thing you've read about yourself on letsrun.com? Oh, it has to be this weekend. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, hey, listener, just go back to the first five minutes and remember that I got bullied by Let's Run this weekend. Yeah, it's, it's not even anything from the message boards. It was an actual... It was just an article. <laughs> Whoever was on Let's Run who gets paid was like, this kid is not worth it, is not ready. Type, 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 type. Okay, yeah, that happened. Yeah, it's a it's a bunch of Ivy League guys, so it's not. It's <laughs> Maybe a, that's why. Yeah, right. Maybe that's why they were just like they're from Cornell. They're just like, no, this Columbia fool has no right. Get him out of here. Yeah. Uh, what's the funniest drug testing story you've got? That in ten years of running, I've never been drug tested. Wow, really? Yeah. Now, now I'm about to get drug tested because I said that. What's up, Usada? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you could go on a run anywhere in the world with anyone from history, assuming they could keep a conversational pace with you, mm. uh, who this, who would be on this run with you, and where would it take place? Uh, they don't have to be like a uh, an actual runner; they could be anyone. They could be real or fake, whatever. <laughs> um, damn. Yeah, I don't think I would pick a real runner. Actually, let's see, place place i think i would probably just stick local honestly i would stick on the boardwalk down on the beach summer beach runs in jersey are sweet just so amazing and i would pick man i don't know now i'm thinking too hard chris (laughs) i think um i get i can pick my grandfather i'll do that he was a runner he was okay. actually a big runner that I never met. I like this answer now. Um, That's a great answer. I never met him. Um, he was a runner, and I think he would he would be sweet to hang out with once down in uh, good old Jersey. Never been there either. Yeah. That's a good answer. Yeah. Um, actually, this is not one of the usual questions, but since we okay. do have like the Runners of NYC podcast that we also do, mm. uh, what do you think of running in New York? Because it's such everyone who's been on the show has sometimes made the case. It is such an inconvenient place to run. And as a member of the New Jersey, New York track club, like how often are you guys in 
New I guess you guys technically are in New York, but it's so far out there. Well, well, I live, I'm in Manhattan. In city, yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to go against that grain and just say it's the most convenient place. I don't, maybe it's in relation to where I live, but I have Riverside a block over. I have Central like 1,200 meters away. Um, okay, so you're uptown. I'm, yeah, I'm up. I'm pretty far up. But, um, oh, I just think it's so convenient. I love it. I don't know. I could have a big discussion about that. <laughs> I go to some other cities, and they just don't hold a flame to New York when it comes to running. I like that answer. Uh, yeah. yeah, Gene and I might have to get you on, the, on that podcast as well. Yeah, uh, let's do that. And then the last question has nothing to do with running. Okay. You get 25 basketball court shots from half the you win $25 million. Okay. If you don't make okay. any, you go to jail for 25 years. Would you attempt the shot? From half court? Yeah. What? No, absolutely not. Good answer. That's my no, answer. No chance. Yes. Um, no, I have so much to say about that. <laughs> I have so much to say. I'm going to drag this out for a second. Half court, listen, that's just not ever going to happen in the first place. Even if you go to like halfway between half court and the three point line, I'm still honestly I'm gonna tell you I'm a bit nervous. Twenty five years in jail, not, not worth it. I would not do well in that situation, um, dude. I would not hit one of those shots. Absolutely not. I've always yeah. I think uh, Sam who said people. yes. Well, um, there's a lot of people, and you could tell it's like oh that, my God. It's their type of confidence is like it's like the Molly Huddles, the Nick Simmons, like. They have that that extra bit of confidence in the, in their athletic ability. Well, I mean, well, you mentioned you played so many different sports growing up. But basketball yeah. wasn't one of them. I know mean, I played basketball, but like you know, I wasn't like throwing up threes. I was yeah, just sprinting. Sure. I was just sprinting down the court, like, and happened to put a layup up once or yeah. twice. Um, it's not. It's not the the confidence thing. It's the fact that the stakes are so high. Yeah. If no. it was like 25 days in jail, like, yeah, I'm taking that bet. 25 years? Dude, I'm not even 25 years old. <laughs> <laughs> nope, nope, nope. All right, Rob. So what's coming up for you? Uh, USA's? Yeah, USA's. Looking forward to that one. You're doing the what? Running a K. Okay. Okay. Yep. I've entered in the mile, but um, we'll see if I can get in on a backfill. But I have an auto qualifier for the 1,000. So going for that. And then we might go to Boston in two weeks. Or I guess it'd be three, and um, just do a last chance mile. I think I'm looking forward to that. Oh, so you're not pacing Kajelcha again? No, no. I don't, I think that ship has just sailed and sunk. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rob. Thanks. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Dude, thank you so much. This was really fun. Many thanks to Rob for taking the time to chat. The U.S. Indoor Championships are coming to New York City, so I'll be there this weekend in Staten Island. A reminder, you can always tweet at me at Chris Chavez or at Sidious Mag on suggestions for who you'd like to hear on the podcast. And if you shout us out in your Instagram story by tagging at Sidious Mag, we will repost it to the masses. We appreciate everyone who has done what they can to get the word out about the show, including leaving a five-star review and a nice comment on iTunes. What that does, it helps other people find the show and it helps the podcast grow. I've been your host, Chris Chavez, wishing you some happy and healthy running. And don't forget, legs are feeling good. <laughs>